Well, I, I have to admit, I am much more Sabatino. <laughs> but he's wiser, and I've always relied on his wisdom. The title of the talk is uh, is the founding of Rome, uh, and the the interesting thing is that for most of us, when we hear the founding of Rome, we probably think to ourselves, okay. Rome, the city. You know, we're going to talk about when the city of Rome, when the first stone was laid, when when Romulus and Remus built the first wall, and one of them jumped over and they got killed by his brother, and all of that. But the thing is that Rome, the historical reality of Rome, is bigger than the city. It's bigger than the city on the banks of the Tiber. The Rome that we're going to talk about tonight is the Rome of a Mediterranean-wide civilization into which our Lord was born at the Incarnation. Now, this world existed as a matter of historical fact to the Roman world, uh, but it continues to exist in some sense today throughout the West. All of the enduring features of Western civilization with which educated Catholics are familiar, uh, from our ancient faith uh, to uh, our esteem for learning and culture, to our traditions of statecraft, our laws, our institutions, that they all bear the deep imprint of the Roman world, uh, which bequeathed all these things to us. Indeed, almost everything that is important and worthy of, of value in our, in our world owes something of its origins to Rome. So it's extraordinarily important for us as Catholics to know the story of how that Roman civilization in the Mediterranean basin came to exist not just as a matter of historical curiosity now, but as a matter of our own identity. Because our, our identity in today's world is under assault. Uh, I mean, for example, one example is the European Union uh, recently drafted a constitution which makes reference to many things as being seminal, uh, seminal features of European values. The Enlightenment is there uh, most obviously, but made no reference to Christianity. And as we're going to see, Christianity is one of the most important things that was bequeathed to us by Rome. So this is, this is very important for, for us as modern-day Catholics. Our ancestors in the Middle Ages were somewhat more aware than we are today of the Romanness of their identity, uh, which far outlasted the actual existence of Roman political institutions in Western Europe. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely critical for us to rediscover this awareness uh, because it's the story of who we are. It's the story of the origins of our identity as Westerners and as Christians. And it's more than that, too. It's the story of God's providential love for us. So it's a stirring story, the story that you're about to hear, uh, because it, it shows us really that salvation history, the, the history of God's work in, in the story of man, it goes beyond just what's in the Bible. Uh, in a sense, for a believing Catholic, all history is salvation history. Uh, God was acting on many fronts in the centuries leading up to our Lord's incarnation. And the founding of a unified Roman world in the Mediterranean was just an extremely important piece of that puzzle that was being put together by divine promise. So to begin rightly here, we're almost obliged to begin at the end. Uh, and the end of the story tonight is a single historical fact, a uh, fact to which few facts of history can compare, namely the fact of God himself having become a man 
in a specific time, in a specific place, at the Incarnation. Now, what we're doing here is we're viewing history through the eyes of faith. We're treating the Incarnation of our Lord as a historical fact that's on par with, with any other historical fact. Uh, you know, no, no one doubts the existence of the Declaration of Independence. No one doubts the existence of even more distant figures like Homer. It's become fashionable to doubt the existence of Christ. Uh, but this is not history. This is pseudo-scholarship and pseudo-science, and, and we should not be fooled by it. Uh, this, is, this is an historical fact that our Lord became incarnate, but it requires the eyes of faith uh, to see it. Now, to see this as the incarnation of the God-man, but what was the world into which our Lord was born? Our Lord was born into a, a very complex world. We know that he was born a Jew. We know that he was born in Palestine. We know that he was born into a world in which the lingua franca of communication was the Greek language. And we know that he was born into a world in which the political institutions were Roman. Our Lord, in a sense, was born in Rome. Uh, he was born as a subject of the Roman Empire. So what we really need to do, first and foremost, is understand what that world was, and then trace the history of its development, see how it came to be. Because what, what we're going to see is that in order for Christianity to spread, in order for the religion which our Lord established to uh, come to influence later civilization, the, the fact that he was incarnate in the Roman world was very, very important, uh, and we're going to talk about that. So to begin, really, we have to begin by looking at the Mediterranean. Uh, there, there are some historians who like to begin everything with geography, so we're going to begin with geography. If you think of the Mediterranean today, well, what is the Mediterranean? The Mediterranean is a divide, right? On one side, you have Europe. On the other side, you have Africa. On one side, you have Christianity, or some secular watered-down version of Christianity. On the other side, you have Islam, right? So the Mediterranean is, is a wall, right, that, that separates two different worlds. That wasn't the case in antiquity, not, not at all, not by any means. The Mediterranean was the centerpiece of the world. The whole world was united around the Mediterranean. In fact, the, the Romans called the Mediterranean our sea, Mare Nostrum. So, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, all of these places were Roman. They were just as Roman as Italy and Spain and France and the Balkans and Greece and Palestine, where our Lord was born. So Antioch and Jerusalem are part of the same world as Naples and Carthage, Tunis, Alexandria, and Gaza, Cartagena, Milan, and Swasun. All of these places are part of the same world. And the Mediterranean, in addition to being the centerpiece of this world, is kind of, it's kind of like the interstate of the empire. Uh, countless ships, Roman ships, crossing the surface of the Mediterranean in all directions, projecting Roman political authority to the furthest reaches of the sea, uniting the four corners of the world into a single network of trade, travel, and exchange. Now, this, this story of how this world came to exist is uh, it's really three separate stories. Uh, it, it's the story of three different cultures, namely Jewish culture and the covenant of God with the Jewish people, <coughs> Greek culture and the development of reason accomplished by the Greeks, and then Roman culture 
the, the Roman, so, so you can see this as three different contributions in effect, to salvation history. Our Lord was born into a world in which the three forces that were creating this world were Judaism, uh, Greek culture, language, and philosophy, uh, and Roman political institutions. So these three different contributions are all extremely important. Now, you, to begin the story, I guess we have to begin with the Jewish part, because that's the oldest part. And it, it's in the Jewish part that we can see most clearly God acting in history. Okay, because God spoke to Abraham, and he called Abraham out of Ur of the colonies, and he said, I will give you a land, and I will give you descendants, but not just any land. What land? Particular piece of land, right? On the coast of the Mediterranean, in the eastern Mediterranean. And it was very, very important uh, to God, as we see throughout the whole Old Testament, that his people, the people who have the covenant with him, be in possession of this land, not any other land. Why is that? Well, we can see in hindsight that God had a providential purpose. God intended the land of his people to be brought within the orbit of this united world, this Roman world, this Greek world. Now, uh, the story of the Old Testament, I'm sure you all know the general outlines very well, but uh, Chesterton put it this way. He said, we owe God to the Jews. Now, does this mean that the Jews were always faithful to the covenant? No, absolutely not. Anyone who's remotely acquainted with the Old Testament knows that it's the story of the infidelity of God's people and the fidelity of God. But it's the fidelity of God that wins because God is always faithful to the covenant and it's his people that are. Uh, but Chesterton was right. We owe God to the Jews. Why? Because look at those three sources of our inheritance. Judaism, Greek culture, and Roman culture. Okay, did we get God from the Romans? No. Did we get God from the Greeks? No. We got God from the Jews. So that's the most important part right there. Now, the story of God's fidelity to his erring people is a long one. I mean, it involves their, their captivity in Egypt and the exodus out of Egypt. Uh, it involves constant lapsing into idolatry, putting idols in the temple, forgetting the law for 500 years at a time, not sacrificing, not fulfilling their end of the bargain. But God was always there. Uh, God was always renewing the covenant. And so, at the time that our Lord was born, our Lord was born into a Jewish people who were subjugated to Roman rulers, right? But they were keeping the covenant. They were keeping the covenant. And so he was able to speak, as, as he says to his apostles, my mission is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The house of Israel was providentially kept intact for all those years, despite their faithlessness, in order to provide a setting for our Lord to have his ministry. And then the, the plan A for God was for the people, the Jewish people, to become a missionary people to the rest of the world. Uh, but this didn't happen. Why? Because his own people rejected it. And this was this incredible source of pain to our Lord. But it's a continuation of the same story from the Old Testament of God's fidelity. God is faithful to the covenant, and the people are not. Uh, but God almost redeems us in spite of ourselves. Uh, now, there's this incredible... Um, 
sort of a contradiction going on in Jewish life at the time their Lord is born. In that they're not sure how to incorporate Greek culture into their lives, into their religion. And this uh, sort of disagreement is at the heart of a lot of the debates that turn up in the gospel. Uh, I'll give you an example. In uh, the Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul is held captive by the Jews for preaching the new way, the way of Christ. And he decides to set his Jewish, the Jewish court against itself. Right? How does he do that? He's, he says, I am a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees, and I am put on trial today because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And immediately the court turns on each other. They start fighting each other, and Paul is able to be spirited away. Now, what, what is it about the resurrection that enabled him to split a Jewish court? Right? Judaism is one religion. Right? It, it has to do with metaphysics. It has to do with belief in souls. There were two factions. The Pharisees, the ones that our Lord was always up against, and, and the faction from which St. Paul came, they believed that there were such things as souls, spirits, angels, and hence they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, the other faction in Jewish life, they didn't believe in any of this. Uh, you know, they, they found the very idea of souls and resurrection and things like that to be problematic. Why? Why would it be problematic? It's second nature to us. Well, because it came from where? Greece. Greece. From Greece. Exactly. Exactly. This was something that didn't come from the Old Testament. It didn't come from Judaism. It came from Greek thought. So that's the next piece of the puzzle. That's the second contribution, in addition to the Jewish contribution, which was basically God. You know, not much, right? No, it's huge. Uh, but because of God's fidelity to them, the Jews were able to be faithful. Then we have this second contribution, the Greek contribution. And this is very, very important for the history of the Mediterranean, because we're going to get back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that our Lord was born into a united Mediterranean world that was united politically and culturally. And this was what Rome was, right? Rome wasn't just a city. Uh, this, the, con the, the very important contribution to all of this came from the Greeks. Now, the, the origins of Greek society kind of lay in, in the distant past. It's a very hard story to tell because it's shrouded in myth. It's shrouded in the legends of the heroic age. Uh, the Greeks believed that they were ultimately descended from the gods, that in effect, their descent goes back to, all the way back to the Titans, who were the old gods. They had this pantheon of Titans who were then overthrown by the second generation of gods, the Olympian gods. And these beliefs go far, far back into antiquity, back into prehistory. Uh, now, the second generation of gods, the Olympian gods, included most of the, the pagan deities that we would be familiar with from, from popular culture. And an interesting thing happens then, which is that instead of a second generation being even more powerful, from this point on, there's a decline. So in Greek cosmology, after the Olympian gods, Zeus being king amongst them, took power, you have this decline. It is no longer progress, as it were. The Greeks didn't believe in historical progress. They believed in decline from a golden age, descent from gods, 
then to weakening into something worse. So from the gods came the heroes, and, and the heroes are those whom we find in the great epics, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, doing great deeds. But at the end of the Odyssey, there's this very telling scene uh, which, in which there's a battle when Odysseus comes back home, which reveals the older generation was stronger than the younger generation. So from gods, you have heroes, and from heroes come men. And their descendants were regular men. So the Greeks, say around five centuries before Christ, believed that they were the lesser descendants of gods. So man was noble. Man was different. Man did not come from the ground. Man didn't come from monkeys. Man didn't, didn't come and you know walk like this, and then walk like this, and this, you know. Man came from above. And this is an important contribution as well, because a positive view of man, which, you know, for the Jews, it's a little bit ambiguous. They believe that man was created, but the Greeks put this enormous emphasis on man being uh, this incredible being, this wonderful being. Now, the, the history of Greece is one that we all learn in grade school, right? The, the Greeks lived in city-states, and the city-states were independent from one another. The most important ones were Athens and Sparta. Now, Athens and Sparta made a very important military contribution in the fifth century uh, before Christ, which is they defeated the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire came from the east, from the Iranian plateau, and they kept making incursions into the eastern Mediterranean, into Asia Minor, and eventually into Greece. And they were defeated in what are called the Persian Wars, the story told by Herodotus. And the, the story of Herodotus actually tells a story of a group of several hundred Greek mercenaries who decided to take pay from a Persian king and go put him on the throne in the Persian capital. So they go fight their way all the way into Persia, put this guy on the throne, then they fight their way all the way back out again. What's, what's interesting about that is that they could have conquered all of Persia if they wanted to, right? The, the Athenians and the Spartans, but they didn't want to. They just didn't care. It didn't occur to them to want to conquer Persia. And that's another important factor in, in Greek contribution, which was the Greeks believed in the importance of home and park and household. Uh, Aristotle, the great philosopher, once said that he couldn't have said anything that he did about man if the poets hadn't first taught him that a man needs a heart and a home. <coughs> so for the Greeks, uh, going and conquering Persia would be a completely illogical thing. The home of the family was the most important building block. And it was a building block of what they call the polis, what we call a city-state. Uh, so for the Greeks, this um, idea of human society all pursuing one end is another thing that they contribute to Mediterranean culture. Uh, you know, the Jews didn't have a very clear idea of this, but the Greeks did. But they conquer Sparta, uh, I'm sorry, um, Persia, and destroy Persia. Alexander, right, well, we're getting there. Uh, the, the Athenians and the Spartans obviously didn't conquer Persia, but as was just mentioned, they were conquered themselves uh, by Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon. He conquered all of Greece. Now, Macedon is 
not quite modern-day Macedonia, but it's to the north of these other big city-states. And so the Macedonians conquered all of Greece, and then they went on. The, the son of Philip of Macedon was the great emperor Alexander. And what did Alexander do? Alexander took all of these great aspects of Greek culture that we've been talking about, belief in the dignity of man, belief in the importance of family and home and polis, and, and more, because Alexander was tutored by the great philosopher Aristotle. And so Greek philosophy is another thing. Uh, it's another important contribution made by the Greeks, which would then be spread by Alexander. Uh, they, Alexander took all of this, and he spread it everywhere. Right? He conquered the Persian Empire. He conquered into India, ranging to the east. Uh, he conquered all of Greece, Asia Minor, Egypt, basically the whole eastern rim of the Mediterranean, and he spread Greek language, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek learning, a Greek view of man and what he was. And this became very important to the Jews. So now we have the second layer kind of being placed on top of the first layer. If the first layer is the Jews who have the covenant, now in the fourth century before Christ, with Alexander's conquests, you have Greek culture, what we call Hellenistic culture, <coughs> being placed on top and becomes a very important element of the Mediterranean worldview. And in all of this, we can see God's providential hand, because as we're going to see, God is preparing the way. He's making straight the way for his son to come and do what he needs to do in salvation history. So now we have an eastern Mediterranean that's united politically, right? and it's also united culturally. Alexander unites it politically with his empire, and he unites it culturally with language, uh, you know, philosophy it becomes studied at different Eastern Mediterranean cities, including Alexandria and Antioch. And his empire was then broken up into three kingdoms that we call the Hellenistic kingdoms. But this isn't very important because they maintained the same culture, this Hellenistic culture. And they themselves would very soon be subsumed into Rome. So then, what's going on in Rome now? The, the title of the talk is Rome, and we haven't even really talked about Rome yet. Rome. What are the dates for Alexander? Uh, Alexander the Great lived from 356 uh, before Christ to uh, 323 before Christ. Uh, and he became the king of Macedon in 336 before Christ. So it was basically between 336 and 323 that he conquered the entire known world. It's pretty impressive. Uh, so, the, we're getting to the end now of the fourth century before Christ, and we have Greek culture, Greek learning, and political unity being added to the Mediterranean. The next part of the story is going to be Rome. Rome at this time was a trading city in the western Mediterranean, and it was competing for dominion in the Western Mediterranean with another city, and that's the city of Carthage. Carthage is on the coast of modern-day Tunisia. And Carthage and Rome were at odds with one another for supremacy in the Western Mediterranean. So what's going on over there is not only do you have two cities competing, but you have two different worldviews competing. And this becomes very important. Because the Carthaginian worldview, unlike the Roman worldview, 
was, to say the least, uh, somewhat pessimistic. Uh, the Carthaginians and the Romans were both polytheists. But for the Romans, the, the Romans worshipped many gods, but they had a fundamentally optimistic view of man. The Carthaginians, on the other hand, also worshipped many gods, uh, but they worshipped gods that they had received from the Phoenicians, right, because Carthage would have been a Phoenician colony. And these are gods which are mentioned in the Old Testament as being eaters of children, because the Phoenicians used to take babies and sacrifice them to these terrible demonic gods. And these are the gods that are being worshipped in Carthage. So you have these, uh, what they call Baals in the Old Testament, that are being worshipped at Carthage. And you have a whole cult of human sacrifice, basically, that dominates the worldview of the Carthaginians. And it's indicative of their whole outlook on humanity. Now, think about the coming of our Lord. It would, would our Lord's message be acceptable if the, if the whole Mediterranean had been dominated by people who sacrificed babies to demons? You know, could this... Could our Lord establish a Christian society in a world in which people sacrifice babies to demons and uh, worship demons? No, I mean, it would have been astonishingly more difficult than it was. So God's providence prepares the way. God's providence prepares the way. Uh, there was a series of three wars in the third century before Christ, which we call the Punic Wars. Now, the, the most important of these was obviously the Second Punic War, which is the famous one in which Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general, led his elephants from Africa to Spain and from Spain to France and from France over the Alps into Italy. This great army with these great war elephants. And he decimated Roman armies. He destroyed Roman armies up and down the length and breadth of Italy. But the Romans held on. Uh, the Romans ended up sending armies to Spain and Africa and diverting Hannibal from his aims in Italy. Hannibal had to return to Africa because there was a Roman army which had kind of gotten away and was advancing towards the walls of Carthage. And on the plains of Zama in the year 202 before Christ, you have this enormous epic battle of Hannibal's enormous army uh, outnumbering the Romans with infantry, with cavalry, with elephants, and then the Roman army with infantry and cavalry and no elephants. <laughs> and there's a very dramatic moment at the beginning of the battle when Hannibal sends his elephants to charge right, and trample the Roman army, which would have changed the whole course of history in the Mediterranean. And so what do the Romans do? The Romans open up the ranks. Because they know, they've learned by this time that elephants can only go one direction, and that's straight. So the elephants all go straight, right? And they go kind of go through and, and keep running. They keep running, they run off the face of the earth. All, all the Romans do is they, they close ranks, and then they fight, and they win. And so Rome was saved, and Rome was more than saved. Rome now, from this point on, was the preeminent power in the Western Mediterranean. But the Greeks, the, the Greek kingdoms who were successors of Alexander, they had done something kind of silly, hadn't they? They had uh, declared themselves to be on Hannibal's side, right? That was pretty silly. So what did the Romans do? The Romans conquered the, the Greek kingdoms. 
they conquer the eastern Mediterranean over the next couple of centuries, and they bring then the entire Mediterranean into one orbit. Now, this is the world into which our Lord was born. Now, the Romans, uh, it's important to note, the Romans didn't so much change the culture and the philosophy and the language of the Eastern Mediterranean. Those things remained brief. Uh, the political administration, however, was Roman. Not only this, but the Romans took, they adopted Greek learning, Greek philosophy, Greek, uh, even the Greek language, and brought them to the Western Mediterranean. So now the different levels or the different layers are all starting to complement one another. Uh, no, no Roman around the time of Christ would have wanted it to be said that his Greek was poor. Why? Because if your Greek was poor, you weren't an educated man. You know, the, the educated lingua franca of the Mediterranean world was Greek. Uh, the sort of dominant worldviews in the Mediterranean world were Greek. And the religion into which our Lord was born was Jewish. Now, at the moment of the incarnation, there's something else that's going on in the eastern, in the eastern and western Mediterranean, which is the complete absence of war. All of Mediterranean history up to this point has been a history of war. Wars that we haven't even talked about. You know, the Persian Wars, the Peloponnesian Wars, the Wars of Alexander, the Punic Wars, the Macedonian Wars. It's been an, a whole history of war. But right before the birth of Christ, there comes a period of peace. Now, this period of peace we call the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. So just in time for the incarnation, the providential hand of God had established a world in which Christ could become incarnate, and his message could be spread by his followers in a world without political borders, i.e. the Mediterranean world, without language barriers, you know, without barriers from negative worldview of sacrificing to Moloch and everything else that they were doing. All of these barriers had been removed. So our Lord is incarnate then, establishes this band of followers, founds the church, and instantaneously, they're able to spread the message of our Lord to every corner of the Mediterranean. Using what medium? What, what medium are the scriptures written in? Greek. 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 Because everybody knew Greek. Everybody, the, the Holy Spirit could speak to everyone with this language. Everyone knew Greek. <laughs> now, the, the subsequent history here, after the incarnation of our Lord, is equally stirring. But it relies upon this model of a whole Mediterranean world that is Roman. So the Romans, then, to sum up a little bit here, the Romans inherited uh, a world in which the Jewish religion existed in the Eastern Mediterranean, the covenant with God, Greek philosophy, Greek language, Greek culture, Greek learning, and they united it with Roman political institutions. Now, the question then becomes, how long did this world last? Did this world just fall apart? How long did it last? And the answer is that in awareness of this world lasted for a very, very, very long time. Um, 
the, the subsequent history is somewhat complicated, but we're all at least a little bit familiar with it. We know that Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century after Christ. Uh, we know that the Roman emperors, Diocletian and Constantine, changed the whole political structure of the empire in such a way that caused culture and society to become more closely united with the government, with the state. And then this allowed Constantine to then uh, legalize Christianity and make it quasi-official, and then it became officially official a little bit later on. Now, the, the Roman Empire was never unified as one entity again after the time of uh, Constantine's, one of his successors, Theodosius, in the late fourth century AD. What happens to the Roman Empire is the western part falls underneath Germanic influence. The eastern part remained for another thousand years. So what happened as Aptino goes, yeah. <laughs> so, so what happens then? The western part falls, the eastern part remains for another thousand years. Does this united Mediterranean world go away? No way. All educated men in Europe still had the idea that the whole Mediterranean world was supposed to be Roman, was supposed to be united. Um, so we see subsequent attempts to try to reunite it militarily in the 6th century. The, the great Eastern Emperor Justinian I came and reconquered huge swaths of the West. As late as the year 668 AD, you had a, an Eastern Emperor, Constantius II, going to Rome and, and being received in Rome. But even later on, Charlemagne in the year 800 was crowned Emperor of the Romans because he knew that to be the uh, supreme leader, head of the Christian Mediterranean, you had to be emperor of the Romans, even though he was a Frank. Now, this, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but this is, this becomes, this is how I'm gonna wrap up. This becomes very important for understanding the history of the Crusades now, because when you talk about the Crusades, this is considered one of the difficult subjects. As Satino mentioned at the beginning, the Crusades are, um, one of the problematic uh, topics for modern-day Christians because secular, um, the secular media and Muslim apologists will come to us and say, you Christians, you are the ones who stirred up the hornet's nest. You aggressively uh, sent your armies from the west to the east to attack these unsuspecting Muslims. Uh, but here's, here's the sense that it makes, though. For the Christians, even as late as the 1090s, Pope Urban II, the Mediterranean was supposed to be Roman. The whole Mediterranean world was Roman. So the fact that Islam had incurred into the Mediterranean world and captured you know, two-thirds of it, let's put it that way, in a very short space of time, meant that they were, in effect, occupying historically Roman territory. They were, they were occupying, in a sense, what the medievals would have said, that's our territory, because we're Romans. Uh, and so, to, to sum up, I mean, it, it, it's important to take away from this that as Christians, as Westerners, we are also Romans. We are inheritors of something that's very old, very ancient, very venerable. Something that was created by the providential hand of God in the historical circumstances of the Mediterranean, namely the Roman world involving all of those things that, that we've been talking about and then into which the incarnation of Christ was injected, you know, like a, a, a spark that just lit up the whole world with faith in God and the message of redemption. And 
We are the heirs of that. We are the Romans. <laughs>